approach time 34, approach button 17, the altimeter 29097. It's no secret that Ross Coulthard is a man on a mission. His unyielding tenacity for unearthing facts in need of a good story sees him epitomise the lofty ideals of investigative journalism. In this episode, Ross and I enter the wormhole of paradigm-shifting physics, the UAP cover-up, the highly intriguing US DOD threat scenario, and the phenomenon's apparent ability to manipulate human consciousness. Please join me as I discuss this and much more with Ross Coulthard. I am Brett Moffat, and you are listening to the UFOs of Oz podcast. Today's guest is a multi-award winning investigative journalist with over three decades of experience in newspapers and television, including reporting for the Sydney Morning Herald newspaper, ABC TV Four Corners, the Nine Network's Sunday program, 60 Minutes, and the Seven Network's Sunday Night. He is the best-selling author of five books and his latest, In Plain Sight, sees Ross embark on what's become the most confronting and challenging story of his career. It addresses the often stigmatised and taboo subject of UAPs, or Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, or UFOs in the vernacular. But as we will soon discover, not only has Ross helped to uncover a compelling trail of evidence, he presents what's potentially the biggest scoop ever. Thanks so much, Ross. It's great to have you join us on the UFOs of Oz podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, this has undoubtedly been a tough nut to crack. So um, some I, I've heard you say some stories desire to be told, but the story of UFOs appears to have taken you on a torturous quest, and many factions of the media and community at large are still extremely reticent uh, of wishing to acknowledge it, its existence. I feel that this story desperately wants to see the light of day, but there are those particularly in the US government who are determined to keep this stigmatised and secret for as long as possible. Why has the story of UFOs been so difficult to break? I think the primary issue is one of stigma. There's a ridicule and a taboo that's been attached to the subject for decades. And interestingly, one of the things I discovered in my research is that it was a very deliberate policy, essentially a disinformation policy by intelligence services in the United States Air Force, uh, the CIA particularly. And they wanted, during the Cold War, the issue of UFOs, UAPs, as I prefer to call them, it's a less loaded term, unidentified aerial phenomena. They wanted that issue shut down. And ostensibly, the public reason is because... If we, if we uh, d- dealt with the volume of people who were making reports to the, um, the US Air Force in those days, it was a huge problem. Basically, there was just too many reports coming in. And the official excuse was they wanted to shut down the number of people that were making inquiries that were basically tying up the Air Force's time. I must say, though, I'm, I'm led to the more sinister conspiratorial view that there was a deliberate policy to shut down the whole subject. And it was a very clever one, it basically ridiculed. It used ridicule as a way of stopping people from talking about the issue. And so throughout most of my career, journalists, editors, executive producers who, who control what programs and newspapers and radio shows broadcast or, or publish... They basically said, look, this subject is rubbish. You know, most 
if not all UFO sightings can be prosaically explained. If they can't be explained, we err on the side of thinking it's all bullshit. So uh, let's just bury it. Let's ignore it as a subject and treat it with the taboo and ridicule that it deserves. That's largely been, I think, the principal reason why the subject has never been truly properly engaged with by investigative news media. Mm. Do you think that's because um, the US were had a campaign, they were, they were retrieving crashed uh, off-world vehicles and they really didn't want people to take interest in this? Or was it because uh, UAPs were potentially an, in, an embarrassment that, that, uh, that the defences um, were, um, you know, basically completely outclassed? No, I think, look, I think there's a range of possible explanations for why they've taken the view they've taken. The first is, let's assume that they're hiding knowledge of something or someone with advanced technology, which I suspect they are, which is better than the United States. Like the, the performance of the Tic Tac, the Gimbal, the GoFast, the videos shot by the US Air Force, uh, US Navy, it's way beyond the best F-22, the best F-35, the best guided missile that the United States has got. It's faster and more agile, more manoeuvrable and clearly intelligently controlled. So the the best plausible and perhaps most innocent explanation for the conduct of the United States, particularly the US Air Force, is that they just don't like admitting that there is a superior technology out there. I mean, America's whole sense of itself, its definition of its military has been based on hegemony, on dominance since the Second World War. If you read the um, the military philosophies of the United States, they, they basically talk about dominance, essentially spending an enormous amount of money, building incredibly advanced technology and enjoying force dominance. That's the way they talk. And essentially, pretty much since the Second World War, no matter what the Russians or the Chinese have done over the years, the Americans have enjoyed that technological dominance. Now, though, we've got this challenge, this mysterious challenge. So that's one possible and possibly the most benign explanation for why the Air Force or the United States military takes the position that it has done. Let's move then into the realm of speculation, totally hypothetical. And I must say, I give the subject some credence in my book because I do have a witness on the record, that's Nat Kovitz, the former Director of Science and Technology Development, saying that he was read into a crash retrieval program involving UAPs. He was told that the United States government had retrieved multiple alien craft, which is an incredible allegation. And I'm not, though, wedded absolutely to the conclusion that that must be true as a journalist, because you have to hold open the possibility, albeit unlikely, that he and all the other sources that got in touch with me were part of a deliberate disinformation by the United States. You know, maybe they're trying to scare their allies. Maybe they're trying to make the Chinese and the, the Russians think twice about launching preemptive nuclear attacks. Or maybe it's just part of asserting that whilst we don't really have force dominance and technology anymore, we want you, the enemy, to think that we do. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's any possible range of explanations, but basically, let's assume that they have recovered a craft, 
then sure as hell they'd want to hide that. I would if I was the US government and I had an alien spacecraft jacked up on wooden blocks in Area 51 and I didn't know how to drive it. I would keep it as secret as long as I could until I'd mastered that technology. And then I would basically make it clear to my rivals, the Chinese, the Russians, don't screw with us because we are now the dominant world power. Because frankly, if there is this recovered technology, if there is alien or as Lou Elizondo has said, exotic technology in the hands of the, the um, Americans, and indeed I understand the Russians are as well, then um, I think seriously we, we, we have to worry very, very much if the Russians and the Chinese get it before the Americans do. You know, we are still living in a world where we value democracy and freedoms, and for all its faults, America still is the last bastion of op openness and transparency and democracy. And yes, I do believe they're hiding secrets. I do believe that there is an enormous secret behind the whole UAP phenomenon. But it's speculative on my part to try and figure out what they're hiding. If they're hiding craft, then sure as hell you'd want to hide it. Hmm. Because the United States has not got a great track record at keeping secrets from its people. So when I consider the infrastructure uh, and the personnel required to maintain an immense secret of this kind, um, how would it be possible to, to maintain this secret without there being leaks? Or are there leaks? Or is that just... Um, um, counter like a, a part of a counterintelligence campaign well i think there have been leaks that's interesting you know i'm, I'm i i've been the recipient of some of them you know i've spoken to people who purport to have worked and are working for what they refer to as the program they they talk about working for a program in the united states that is trying to back engineer recovered non-terrestrial non-human technology and i find that mind-blowing because Whilst as a journalist, I can't automatically assume that what they're telling me is true. If it's true, if it is true, it's an incredible situation we've got here where we really do have the possibility that, um, you know, the United States in the black, whilst lying to the public and lying to the presidents and lying to the Congress about what it's really up to, it's been, secret it's been secretly developing this technology if that's the case. You know, it's all hypothetical and speculative at the moment, but there is a body of evidence to support the possibility that that is the case. And I, I, I guess I look back to things like the Manhattan Project, which was the American development of the nuclear bomb that was eventually exploded uh, in the Trinity bomb in um, 1945. With, a, with the exception of a few leaks during World War II, 10 thousand people worked on the atomic bomb project and it was largely kept secret until the explosions over Nagasaki and Hiroshima in 1945. So it is possible to keep enormous secrets. Uh, I'm aware of things as a journalist that I've undertaken to my government not to reveal that the public don't know because they involve really sensitive national security issues. Governments keep secrets. But interestingly enough, they occasionally do leak. And I think the interesting thing about the UFO, the UAP phenomenon, is it is leaking. There are people talking who purport to be insiders, who purport to have inside knowledge. I don't believe all of them. There was a, uh, a listener today who contacted me about the um, 
alleged secret space force that's gone to Zeta Reticuli as part of the Serpo project. And I'm sorry, I call bullshit on that. I really don't believe that the United States is involved in interstellar travel secretly with some kind of secret space force. I, I do think it would be impossible with all the other nations in the world with uh, monitoring systems and the proliferation of private radar, private video, you know, we would have picked up that kind of movement of craft in and out of our atmosphere. But what is interesting to me is what is irrefutable is what the United States has admitted, that there is a phenomenon. It's intelligently controlled. Some of these people are using words like craft or vehicle to describe these objects. And they're performing speeds, maneuvers, turns that are just absolutely mind-blowingly advanced, far beyond known human technology. And that in and of itself is a mystery that is worthy of investigation for any journalist. And like a lot of people in ufology, I'm perplexed as a journalist now that I'm aware of the issues in this issue. I'm perplexed that mainstream media isn't more aggressively knocking down the door of governments and private aerospace trying to get to the bottom of this mystery. Is, is that because it's a it's a tough story to tell for the media. There's, uh, I, I find with ufology, there is um, so much to the story. It, it literally goes back at least 70 or 80 years in the modern era. Is it is it a difficult story to tell uh, in a thousand words or less? Does that make it any more difficult to tell this in a simple way? Look, I think part of the problem is you've got to do a degree in UFO research before you can even start to talk properly about the issue. I've, I've, spent literally years reading every book I can, watching every documentary I can on the subject. And it's what I do with any investigative story is you basically brief yourself on what's already publicly known. And then you ask the question, well, how can I advance this? Can I take this any further as a journalist? And um, I think for a lot of journalists, it's just too much bloody effort. But this is an indictment of modern journalism too. You know, the there's an implicit assumption that a lot of people make that there are well-resourced newsrooms, vast, you know, arms of television networks, newspapers that have got fleets of investigative reporters tasked to go out and dig into the deepest, darkest secrets. The reality is, is that we're in a time of declining media. The free-to-air television industry is in serious decline. It won't exist in five to 10 years' time. It'll be online. Newspapers are slowly dying, and they won't exist in print form in five to 10 years' time, if not earlier. And so the resources that are allocated through advertising revenue to actually fund this kind of research or through public funding of public broadcasting it's just next to impossible to get the resources anymore. So it's extremely rare. That's why it was extraordinary for me that Channel 7 here in Australia funded my documentary to go to the United States and to travel around Australia to look at the UFO issue. And um, it paid off for them, as they've realised, because there's an enormous public interest. And this is the other thing that I find bewildering, is that the public, there's a, there's a certain wisdom of the crowd where I think the public interest is often far ahead of what your average punter journalist is thinking. And so journalists tend to think as a pack. They, they, they tend to follow the story that everybody else is following. And one of the things I was blessed with was editors who taught me to think sideways to that. 
I was taught to always try and find the stories that everyone else isn't looking at, to be drawn to the contrarian line in a story, to look at stories in a different way. And that's often where you find the most interesting stories. And that's certainly where I've come to to in, um, in ufology, because, you know, I'm, I must confess, I started out looking at this subject two or three years ago, thinking, well, in all certainty, I'm going to find an explanation for this. I'm going to find a black US project secret, you know, a secret project that's doing aerospace research that explains all of these weird objects. And we're going to be able to put this one to bed. And it's going to be a big dig, but it's going to be fun. And we're going to get to the bottom of it and have an answer. And then we can blow off all these ufologists and all these tinfoil hat crazies. And the interesting thing is, is that I've got in, as I've got into it, I've realized the phenomenon, as I prefer to call it, because I think it's too simplistic just to talk about solid objects. We're talking here about consciousness. We're talking here about human perception. We're talking here about whether you can actually believe what your eyes are seeing. You know, the, the technology that the US is using to detect these objects is capable of manipulation. You know, there's a, there's a real question mark here about just exactly what the phenomenon is. But what I'm fascinated by is in the time that I've been doing my research, the United States government has formally admitted, it's been forced to admit it's real. And it all started, as you know, with the New York Times revelations in 2017, where they published the first of three videos, the Tic Tac video, and then the, the Gimbal and the Go Fast videos, which essentially were very, very um, highly protected videos that were shot by US Navy fighter pilots uh, as part of their exercises training up for the Middle East. And these had been kept classified, but they were strategically leaked. I, I suspect by Christopher Mellon, the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Defence of the past, and um, it was provided to the New York Times. And then as a result of that leak, it's unleashed the most extraordinary series of revelations where in April last year, the US Navy essentially admitted that it couldn't prosaically explain the phenomena in those videos. And this is one of the things that infuriates me about the um, ridiculous arguments from some of the skeptics is that we really do go back to stupid arguments that are the pilots just must be confused because, you know, what they're seeing, they couldn't possibly have seen, therefore it isn't. It seems to be the standard scientific line. And I think that's a very unscientific line. The reality is, is that when the Navy issued its statement in April last year saying that it could not prosaically explain those videos, I know they've looked at every prosaic explanation they can think of. They've looked at weather balloons. They've looked at drones. They've looked at alternative rival nation technology. Um, they've looked at whether there might be an arm of the United States military that was testing technology against its pilots. And they've reached the conclusion that they can't say that. They've acknowledged it's a genuine mystery. And then I think as a result of those videos basically leaving the public with their jaws open and pushing for congressional uh, investigation of the issue, you had prominent senators like um, uh, Mark Warner in the Senate Intelligence Committee and then Marco Rubio, senior members of the Congress, basically saying, look, we want answers. We want the Defence Department to tell us what the hell's going on because fighter pilots are telling us there's been near-miss incidents. You know, these things have damn near crashed into us. What are they? 
And then begrudgingly, I think the US military has been hauled by its nose out of the darkest, deepest, deepest secret closets. And it's basically been forced to admit in this most recent um, uh, report to the Congress by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, even though it's written in as boring a way as possible, and it's attempted to avoid any acknowledgement at all of ETs or aliens, what it leaves blaringly open is the possibility, and it acknowledges this, that one possible explanation for what we are seeing is indeed the possibility that we are not alone. Absolutely. And do you feel like the, the prevalence of these incursions and, and the sightings, do you feel that that's on the increase or do you feel that's because our, our, our means of actually collecting that data uh, is getting better than, than what it was in the past? It's a very good question. I mean, I, sort of anecdotally, I'm told by sources that I'm in touch with from the US Navy that the number of sightings off the east coast of America are rising all the time, that, that they've been seeing objects weekly, if not daily, that one pilot told me that every time they went out, they would see anomalous objects. And that's quite something because historically UAP sightings have been far more sort of occasional and incidental and infrequent. So anecdotally, I'm not able to measure it, but anecdotally people are telling me that it's manifesting itself far more often. And it's almost as if there's an intelligence there that's basically saying, I'm not going to let you ignore me. You know, I'm here, you know, notice me. And uh, it's interesting because I, in the last few weeks since I made a documentary for Australian television on this issue, I have received in excess of 11,500 messages, sightings reports, military witnesses, civilian uh, military witnesses, um, defence insiders, intelligence insiders, and they're telling me that the, the, the presence of whatever this phenomenon is is far more manifest today than it was 10 or 15 years ago. And so there is, I mean, a lot of people have suggested to me that maybe if there is an intelligence behind this, which is what some senior US officials have said to me there is, it is clearly intelligently controlled, then it's manifesting itself far more intentionally and far more deliberately than it has in the past. And I, I do wonder, you know, some people have suggested to me that maybe there's kind of like a a time limit for disclosure. You know, if there is an intelligence there, maybe it's basically saying, look, we're only going to give you a certain amount of time to basically tell the public what's going on. So, you know, you better get your act into gear. I, I don't know. I'm only speculating. But um, that's certainly uh, anecdotally the case, that there are far more sightings than there previously used to be. Mm. And that's, uh, that's the impression I get, is that uh, the United States is not in control of this narrative but the uh, the phenomenon is has taken over control of that narrative which is why uh, the US government if it is uh, has crash retrieval and um, reverse engineering programs um, is unable to keep the lid on it anymore basically because of the uh, the, the number of sightings but um, 
to your point uh, about the intelligence behind it, I've, I've always um, speculated with Westall in, uh, in Melbourne in 1966, if that was a thwarted attempt to make contact with school children, which was finally realised some 30 years later in 1994 in the aerial school visitation in Zimbabwe, or whether these were just simply coincidences because they seem to have a lot of parallels. Well, I can tell you that there is a book, there's an excellent book that I name in my book because I stumbled across it while I was doing my research that claims there have been over 100 school sightings incidents and that this has been a very common thing, that, that objects have manifested themselves to school children. And I was talking to somebody in Wales the other day who told me that there's a very famous sighting at a school in Wales that's um, very well known in the United Kingdom. But, um, yeah, I mean, I... I I find it fascinating because if you actually, I'm really excited to hear the um, the forthcoming film, uh, the Ariel phenomenon, which is apparently coming out soon, uh, which features an investigation into the sightings at Rua in Zimbabwe by a lot of children at a school, uh, as you say, in uh, 1994. I'm fascinated because it does open because those kids claimed to have some kind of telepathic connection with whatever the entities were that they claimed to have seen. And uh, I've spoken to other people who've claimed to have that kind of connection where essentially they're being given warnings about how we look after our planet. And, um, you know, talking to Bob Salas, the guy who ran the um, ICBM missile silo in the 1960s, who I interviewed recently, and he told me that he'd seen a or his, his crewmen, his security chiefs, had seen a, um, a huge glowing red object, obviously solid, hovering over his silo, his nuclear missile silo. And then it essentially turned off his nuclear missiles and disarmed all of his 10-Minuteman nuclear missiles. And he believes strongly that and other incidents show that whatever the phenomenon is, it's trying to send a message to humanity. Don't screw around with atomic weapons, nuclear weapons. And um, look, you know, ultimately we're in the realm of speculation here. But what it does to me, the thing I find, and as a journalist, I, the thing I found just screamingly obvious was the reluctance of the United States government to engage with this subject is, it screams, it screams to me that they know a lot more than they let on. And if, if there's one book I can recommend to you that you should buy, and it costs a bomb to buy, it's this fantastic book by Robert Hastings, UFOs and Nukes. This is a guy who, as a young man, was working, sweeping the floor at an airbase in Midwest America, and one of the radar controllers showed the teenage Bob Hastings UFOs screaming across his radar screen and said, have a look at this, isn't this amazing? And that fired his interest in the phenomenon, in the subject. And he has investigated literally hundreds of sightings incidents over nuclear weapons silos, over facilities connected to nuclear weapons. And when I told him that as part of my research, I was finding witnesses who said that there'd been sightings at Pine Gap in the middle of central Australia, where we have the joint facility with the Americans, and also at the Harold Holt Naval Communication Station in Northwest Cape, and indeed at other military facilities around Australia, he laughed and he said, well, welcome to my world, because he said pretty much every ICBM silo in the United States has had visitations. And he said, 
why does the government ignore that fact? And why isn't that a national security issue? Because it should be. And this is the really interesting thing is we're now in a completely new paradigm because ever since Project Blue Book in 1969, where they shut down investigations into UFOs and basically said that there was no national security issue posed by the phenomenon, it's quite obvious to me from the research I've been doing and the interviews I've done that the US was lying through its teeth in that regard. They have never stopped. They've always continued to research and monitor and track this phenomenon. And why is the big question mark in my book? Why not level with the public and tell them that this is going on? Why have they hidden it? Uh, because they have. And, and that's the thing that the inescapable conclusion that I've come to as a reporter is there has definitely been cover-ups. Roswell was a cover-up. I just don't know why. Aztec was a cover-up. I just don't know why. There's so many sightings. Westall, the Westall case in April 1966. I've got people on the record asserting that they were threatened and told to shut up about what they saw. There was a cover-up. What I don't know is why there was that cover-up. Would it be because this is a space race? It's another Cold War. This is a race to develop this technology and potentially weaponise it. Well, I mean, I know that there's, there's two schools. It's quite interesting. In, in, everywhere there's politics. And so in ufology, I discovered there's two schools of thought. There's the schools of thought who think that whatever it is, it's all about militarising space. It's all about weaponising space. And that's where the Stephen Greer's, Dr. Stephen Greer, the um, former physi the physician, uh, comes in. And he argues that... Um, uh, and the Russians support him in this, that essentially there's a lot of unfair uh, assertions made by uh, people in America who, who assert that we need to spend money on Space Force and Space Command because we have to acknowledge that the next area for warfare is space. And he claims that he's being told through CE5 contact with extraterrestrials that, that extraterrestrials are peaceful beings and that we don't need to worry. And then, of course, you know, if you if you go down this path on the other side, there are people like Lou Elizondo and Christopher Mellon who take an extremely conservative view. I mean, Lou, as you know, ran the Pentagon's UFO investigations program. And um, uh, Christopher Mellon was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defence. And what they are doing is essentially acknowledging as former senior officials inside that military industrial complex, they're acknowledging that this is a real phenomenon and they're saying we need to take it seriously and we need to investigate it. We need to have congressional hearings to hear more from military witnesses about it. But they bitterly resent the fact that they're being called warmongers by Stephen Greer. And uh, frankly, I think history will History will basically decide who's right and who's wrong, you know. I mean, but but essentially, I find it fascinating. I'm not taking sides. I'm just a journalist. I'm a journalist describing the phenomenon and describing the story and wending my way through the the different parties. And uh, what I am persuaded of is that it is inevitable that space will be militarized because, frankly. It already is. You know, the Russians are looking at um, anti-satellite technology. They're experimenting with machines that can take out other nations' satellites. I'm sure the Americans, even though they don't like talking about it, are doing and done the same. So, you know, the 
the reality is, is why, you know, why are we building a space force, for example, or why is America building a space force and why is Australia involved in a space force? What are we preparing for? And these are, these are questions that should legitimately be asked. I'm told by sources for what it's worth who are in a position to know that the Americans have recovered non-terrestrial, non-human technology one of my sources flatly asserted he'd been briefed into multiple craft being recovered. Other sources have told me that they're aware of craft, singular. One's told me he's seen it. Uh, you know, the bottom line is there's a strong body of evidence to suggest that the United States government is in possession of highly advanced non-terrestrial technology. And frankly, I can hear mainstream journalists around the world giggling at that notion. You know, I don't know why, but it invites ridicule. Well, they've just got to wake up and accept that things are changing very, very quickly. Because when you have former CIA directors, former president, former director of national intelligence, former head of the Pentagon's UFO program, former deputy assistant secretary of defense, making admissions and talking about, in one case, exotic recovered technology or alien technology, as Lou Elizondo has done, you've really got to sit up and take notice. I mean, he's been quite outright and flatly in his assertion that, that we've got, well, America's got stuff that the rest of the world doesn't have. And then other people are telling me that the Russians have recovered craft of their own or technology of their own. And then other people are telling me that the Chinese are trying to get technology of their own. There's a massive intelligence battle going on to try and find out what each nation's got. So really, I, I, I don't know what to make of it, but essentially it's, it's just fascinating because if there is a Cold War going on behind the scenes, and I suspect there is, then um, it's bloody interesting. And why are they hiding it? That's the thing that gets me. Is it just because they don't like admitting that there's a technology that's more advanced than anything here on this planet? Or is it that they're bound by some oath amongst, amongst these nations not to reveal what they know? Mm. If so, why? Because, mm. I, I mean, this is the thing I've wrestled with is there were momentous times during my research where I reluctantly came to the conclusion that there really are cover-ups. You know, there really are things being concealed. And I've had the most astonishing conversations with quite senior scientists who, as a matter of public interest, wanted the public to know that there is back engineering going on on technology. There really are recovered so-called metamaterials that do really weird things. And we're on the cusp of allegedly major developments and discoveries that, that hopefully the West will crack before authoritarian governments will, because otherwise we, we have a thousand years of slavery ahead of us. You know, there's, it's not a good prospect to think that, you know, there is this Cold War battle going on behind the scenes and that um, authoritarian regimes are as much in the race as um, the free world. Mm. You know, we live in very, very dangerous times. And whoever gets this technology, if it exists, whoever masters this incredibly advanced technology basically runs the planet. Mm. Do you, um, as a journalist, it must be really difficult to be following the facts, but then um, 
hold back your own prejudices or 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 perhaps biases do you have you found that with with this do you do you have your own personal opinions that you have to refrain uh, making public um, or, or no it's it's always it's always more subtle than that because as a journalist you only ever publish about five percent of what you know and so I've had some mind blowing conversations with people who are public names public figures, senior officials in various administrations in different countries. And they've told me certain things that rock my worldview, you know, are really confronting. And I can't reveal them because I'm not in a position to comfortably assert that what they're telling me has any basis in fact. You know, I'm looking for secondary corroboration or some way of verifying what they're telling me. Um, I'm not just going to willy-nilly publish stuff that might, in fact, be disinformation. You know, there's a huge checking process that all journalists go through. So it's not that I'm uncomfortable because it clashes with my worldview. All I'm doing is treating this with the skill set that I normally approach any story, which is to test allegations, find verificatory witnesses, um, test claims that are being made, assess evidence, and then reach a conclusion. And as often is the case, or as always is the case in journalism, 99% of what I know I never publish. Mm-hmm. And, and that's always difficult. It's always a difficult thing in journalism. You know, people often say, well, why did you not go further in that story that you ran? And often you're constrained by defamation laws or, frankly, in this case, I'm very heavily constrained by what I feel I can safely say under national security laws because I'm privy to certain aerospace technological developments, which are fascinating, which um, suggest that there is research being done in the black into things like anti-gravitics and advanced technologies, which suggest that certain um, uh, officials in a certain country in the world are far more advanced than we anticipated. Mm. <laughs> I'm sorry to be vague. No, 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 absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Actually, this is probably a, a bit of a vague question, but what part of the phenomenon compels you the most? What's the what's the aspect that when you get up okay, in I, the morning? No, this, this is the thing that I find most interesting. The thing I find most interesting is when I've spoken to experiences, people who've met the phenomenon up close, it's not just a visual thing. It's a consciousness thing. It's a perception thing. And there's an incredible leak that the Mind Sublime blog in the United Kingdom, I think his name's Jay. He wouldn't let me use his second name. But there's a guy called Jay from a blog called The Mind Sublime in the UK who went trawling on Christopher Mellon's personal website before Chris took it down. And this was shortly after the New York Times revelations in December 2017. And one of the things that he found on Mellon's website was a slide that was used, we suspect, by people from To The Stars Academy to, or or possibly from NIDS, we're not entirely sure, but to brief the Undersecretary for Defence, Deputy Undersecretary for Defence in the US. So we know, I've been able to verify that the slide is an authentic document. And what that slide shows is that 
the Undersecretary for Defence in the United States was advised that the phenomenon is capable of manipulating human perception and consciousness, that people may not be seeing what they think they're seeing. It's even capable of, of generating physical objects to something that may not indeed be physical. It's mind-blowing. I mean, essentially, it's almost magical if you consider the, the descriptions that it's giving. But, um, I, I wish I had the slide in front of me. I'll pull it out if I can remember it. But um, basically, slide nine is, as it's called, is, is a really important document. And I think in the scheme of things, it's been overlooked by a lot of researchers because it's a window into, some, into what the United States Defense Department is being told by those scientists who've researched this phenomenon. Mm. And it suggests that, and this is the most intriguing thing to me, the phenomenon has the capacity to screw with your mind. Mm. And uh, it's interesting because Eric Davis, Dr. Eric Davis, who's obviously, as you know, one of the kind of principal commentators in this area, he worked for um, Bob Bigelow's NIDS um, he's worked with Hal Putoff for many years at his, uh, Texas, at Austin, Texas Center for Advanced Studies. And he's now working uh, for an aerospace corporation in Long Beach, California. Very, very heavily um, respected scientist and somebody who's working right inside the nexus of the national security infrastructure on secret projects for the US government. And Eric Davis wrote a paper that's among the documents that I've been able to get from the archives of the late Dr. Edgar Mitchell. And the paper talks about how the Cash Landrum incident, a UFO sighting back in the 1960s or 70s, I've forgotten when, it, um, it involved a, a mother, her sister, and uh, a son seeing an object in the road, and it was emitting allegedly vast amounts of radiation and causing allegedly physical injuries to the, the threesome. But what was fascinating about their account and what was used to discredit them were their claims that there was a massive number of helicopters that were in pursuit of this object. And um, it looks as though the object was in some trouble because it apparently landed or hovered just above the road. But on their account, there were like dozens of helicopters, including gigantic, multi-gigantic Chinook helicopters in pursuit of this object. And the US Air Force went to a lot of trouble to investigate whether there were a large number of Chinook helicopters in that part of the US at the time. And they were able to demonstrate that there weren't. And in this quite extraordinary paper that Dr. Davis has um, privately published, I don't know if it's been publicly uh, presented, um, he suggests that this is an example of the phenomenon manipulating human perception, mm. that, that essentially what might explain the high strangeness and the weirdness, the way that people feel sometimes that, you know, they're discouraged from taking an active interest in things. They don't take photographs. They don't think about the thing that they've just seen, often for days afterwards. You know, I've spoken to people to whom that's happened. You know, I say to them, why didn't you just go inside and grab a camera? Mm. You know, why didn't you go inside and grab a video? And they go, never really occurred to me. And there's this kind of vagueness that descends upon these witnesses. And so I think it's possible. That's the thing that's fascinating to me is that there's a body of evidence to suggest that it is possible that the phenomenon is manipulating human perception and consciousness. And that's certainly what um, 
Jacques Vallée, the, the father, if you like, of modern ufology has suggested, you know, he's, he's often suggested that you cannot look at the phenomenon, that it's too simplistic just to talk about little green men in spaceships from another world. Um, he thinks you have to look at this as a consciousness thing and that the answer to this whole question lies in consciousness. And mm. I think he's right. Mm, I think absolutely. he's right. Absolutely. I was I was fascinated to hear the story of Annie. I know you tell the story of, of Annie and the, the two federal police officers, but there's another story I, th I think you, I've, I've heard you speak of when Annie was a little girl and um, she was with a mate and they were at... Yeah. At, at, and um, can you can you talk a little bit about, about that? Yeah, she told me that when she was about 13 years old, she was on a sleepover with a relative on a station or a very remote farm that her father owned about 30 or 40 kilometres outside of Exmouth on North West Cape in a remote part of Western Australia. And uh, her father was asleep in another bedroom and uh, there were workmen asleep in adjoining sheds, uh, adjoining buildings. His, her father was quite a successful businessman and fisherman in that part of Australia. He set up um, commercial fishing, if you like, in that part of Northwest Cape. And um, in the middle of the night, there was an outside toilet. And so in the middle of the night, her friend wakes her up and says, oh, will you come outside with me? It's a bit scary. Can, can you come with me for a pee? And so they go outside to go to the toilet. And the moment they walk outside, they look up and they, they see what she describes as a massive multiple football field-sized black triangular, triangular craft hovering overhead. It had lights and more importantly, it had a blue light that was shining down, apparently searching the ground around the sheds where the family was located. And needless to say, both she and her friend were completely spooked by this. And so they ran inside to try and wake her dad. And they were, on her account, pummeling her father on his chest, shaking him, trying to wake him up. And he wouldn't wake up. And it obviously leads to the suggestion that the phenomenon, whatever it is, had made him stay asleep. And so then they ran, and this is a big taboo, of course, to go into the workmen's cottages, but they ran into the workmen's cottages and shook them as well and tried to wake them up. None of them would wake up. And so then these two frightened little young girls basically uh, went back into their bedroom inside and um, they huddled into a sleeping bag and zipped it up together and basically cuddled each other in, in fear. And then I think Annie realised her friend was asleep and couldn't wake her up. And then she watched as these orbs came through the room where they were. And she was really freaked out by it because something was clearly meddling with the um, consciousness of the other people. And she was equally puzzled as to why it was. And this is another thing about the phenomenon. It does seem to come back to the people that it's met before. You know, it re-engages with people. And so many people who've described one experience with me, especially quite spooky ones, when you actually sort of push with them and ask them, you know, well, have you had other experiences? Often it's been in the family or other family members have had sightings or, you know, granny told a story once that she'd seen stuff. And it, it seems to follow family groups. And uh, I don't know what that is. I don't know what the explanation is for it, but I do think we should be engaging with it scientifically. You know, it's we're past the era now where we can discount it and just say it's all rubbish. Um, there really is some validity to this. Mm. 
Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> and, and um, yeah, speaking of, I, I actually had an experience myself. Um, and what was very strange about that was um, when the experience happened, which was in 2011, I actually diarized it and, uh, and did some diagrams and stuff. And I actually spoke to people about it the next day. But the way I recall the event happening was three years later. So based on the experience I had, I couldn't have had it in 2011 because <laughs> okay. I, I experience it. I experience it from where I was in 2014, but I, I've actually got the document, I guess the documented evidence that it actually happened in 2011, even though um, I'm actually telling it from the, um, from the perspective of where I was in 2014. And it's really, I can't reconcile the difference in time and how that was, how that happened. And, um, so when you speak of that, um, it's, it's, it definitely, um, yeah, rings, rings true to me and my experience. And, um, it, it does mess with your, with your mind to the, because you, you're trying to actually reconcile where did the, how it, it's, 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 the, it's a puzzle that, that, um, simply you can't make sense of. Yeah, no, I, and I think part of the part of the frustrating aspect to the phenomenon is the fact that it really is um, almost like it makes things sound as crazy as possible to confound any attempt to understand it. Um, you know, just when you think you're on top of stuff and and, and you can deal with it, I can remember. Um, I mean, a few people have actually got annoyed with me on uh, social media in recent weeks because I I made a, an inadvertent comment where I incorrectly inferred that all people who were abductees or asserting that they were abductees uh, were crazy. And I didn't mean to infer that. But basically, the whole abduction phenomenon, I don't know what to make of it, because I've had conversations with senior military officials in the United States. There's a former FBI executive, former head of you know one of the very senior parts of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the National Police Force in the US, who've given me astonishing descriptions of what they say are abduction experiences, you know, where they've been taken. And I, I, I'm not going to laugh at it. I'm certainly not going to dismiss it. But how do, you, how do you even begin to understand that and explain it? Mm. And then there's the whole issue of military abductions, you know, people who claim that they've been abducted by um, aliens and, and uh, American military collaborating together. And it's, it's weird because... You know, just when I'm thinking I might be able to accept some of this, it gets even weirder. And it's like the phenomenon's playing with you. It's toying with you and inviting you to think, oh, this is just such complete rubbish. I should dismiss it out of hand. And I'm not prepared to do that because the more I, um, the more I get into it, the more I realize that it really is. Um, uh, there's, there's a weirdness here that needs to be addressed. Um, and I'm just trying to find the slide nine ufo slide while i talk to you because sure. um uh it really is it's I, th I think it's um i think it's an incredibly important uh document absolutely yeah but um anyway look um that, ask me another okay. question while i'm looking yeah no I, I was just i was wondering because of the the strangeness and weirdness of that do you feel as though 
I suppose your your approach to journalism is challenged because you rely on hard facts. And this is very this unless you have multiple eyewitnesses or data to support um, what you're going to report on or write about, then you you simply can't make those statements and those judgments. Do you feel like it really undermines your capacity as a journalist? No, not really. I, I have to admit that's what I assumed I would find as I went into it. I assumed that I was going to find that I couldn't substantiate a lot of stuff. And so I approached it just like I do any investigative story. I, I tried to find primary sources who were prepared to go on the record, and I tried to find documents and evidence. And the first thing I did was go through Australia's and indeed America's national archives, looking at the files from Australia's Joint Intelligence Organisation, uh, Defence Department, and then the American National Security Agency, the CIA, the Defence Department over there. And it was astonishing because, you know, there are actually documents in the American archives that record crash retrievals of flying saucers and and they're never explained you know they're just there in the cia archives mm. there are files from the 1950s and the 1960s where they're talking about retrievals of craft that have crash landed that are you know tens of meters across and it's really interesting because you know i i, I think that that is something that begs investigation you know we really do need to get to the bottom of what the hell is going on here absolutely and um Listen, while I've got you here, I mean, I'll, I'll just read you slide nine because I've now found it. It's the ninth and final slide in a series of slides that um, the Mind Sublime blogspot found on Christopher Mellon's website. And it's headed DOD Threat Scenario. So Department of Defense Threat Scenario. And this was a focus by ATIP, the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Project, sub-focus areas. It said, quote, the science exists for an enemy of the United States to manipulate both physical and cognitive environments in order to penetrate U.S. facilities, influence decision makers and compromise national security. I mean, that almost sounds like something from the Manchurian project, you know, where you've got influence decision makers. Are we suggesting that that something the phenomenon can manipulate decision-making in governments? That's, that's a shocking proposition if that's true. They talk about psychotronic weapons, which when you look that up are weapons that can essentially fiddle with your mind. Cognitive human interface, God knows what that is. But here's something, penetration of solid surfaces. I've, I've spoken to people who've told me that there have been orb objects witnessed by security staff at Pine Gap in Australia, the joint Australian-American facility, which have been seen to penetrate solid concrete and to go through rooms. Instantaneous sensor disassembly. So what are we suggesting there, that radar sets have suddenly been instantaneously disassembled? Alteration, manipulation of biological organisms. Now, that's almost strange, Lovian, isn't it? Mm. An anomalies in the space-time construct, Whew. unique cognitive human interface experiences. DOD's advantages, it, alert, it, it asserts, are that DOD has been involved in similar, similar experiments in the past. 
It has relationships with renowned subject matter experts, and it controls facilities where activities have been detected. What was considered phenomena is now quantum physics. So that's the advice that ATIP was giving um, the Undersecretary for Defense in the United States, which is pretty mind-blowing. You know, it's, it, I mean, I, I'm just shocked that, that, you know, I mean, here's another assessment that they've made. Realization that many of the findings, if used against the United States, may prove to be decisive game changers for our country. Preliminary evidence indicates that the United States is incapable of defending itself towards some of these technologies. It calls for further investigation, and it says the nature of these technologies and the fact that the United States has no countermeasures is considered highly sensitive. Mm. Now, forget for a moment what's said publicly. This is what's being said privately. This was never intended to be made public. I've verified this document's authenticity. It was prepared for a briefing for a senior member of the Defence Department. This is serious stuff. It's basically asserting very serious threats, possibilities to the United States. That's why we have to take this phenomenon seriously. There are anomalies which are not being explained, which are far beyond just simple blurry objects in the sky you know we're way beyond that now and the the skeptics need to wake up to themselves and start being more scientific because they're being very unscientific in how they try to debunk the phenomenon you know before the us went public with its assertions that it could not explain this anomaly they've already looked at those prosaic explanations and i think that's a point that's been lost on a lot of people absolutely like that that sounds like science fiction um it does and, and, it really does and the fact that it's mentioned where it is mentioned means there is i would dare say considerable um evidence and analysis that's that's gone into that before even creating that slide which means that that this has potentially been around for decades or they've known about it for quite a while yeah no i, I think you're absolutely right i mean um Look, the evidence is overwhelming that the United States never stopped looking at the subject. I mean, this is the thing that I found the most fascinating as a journalist, is that we've all been led to believe since Project Blue Book that publicly the US is saying, we're not interested in this phenomenon. And this is what the Brits are saying. It's what the Australians have been saying. When in fact, the Americans particularly, the evidence is just overwhelming in the files that have been most recently declassified. The evidence is overwhelming that they are continuing to monitor this phenomenon. They're spending an inordinate amount of money in focusing and investigating it. Um, they've never stopped. They've mm. always engaged with the subject matter and they're fascinated by it and they are trying to back engineer whatever it represents in terms of advanced technology. Mm, absolutely. And it seems so phenomenally more advanced than anything we have in production at the moment that um, it, it, it would definitely seem like the phenomenon is, um, is, is toying, <laughs> toying with us. Um, so, um, no, thank you so much for sharing that. It's quite extraordinary. Um, and the other thing, too, that I think that, I mean, if we're talking about what I rely on as a journalist, obviously, I've spoken directly to first person witnesses. And 
scientists, you know, have then said, oh, you know, you can't rely on first-person witness evidence. It's often flawed. It's often, you know, um, uh, you know, witnesses often give unreliable testimony. And that's really interesting to me because in the USS Nimitz case, for example, the objects were seen by dozens of people, not just with naked eyes, but also with sensor systems, some of the world's most advanced sensor systems. Multiple people saw objects, multiple witnesses saw these objects. Sensor systems saw them on radar, phased array radar systems, forward-looking infrared systems. E-2 Hawkeye aircraft tracked them. People from that E-2 literally looked out of the window and videoed them much, much more closely than we've been told publicly. Mm. I'm told that E-2 Hawkeye team were basically forced to sign um, oaths not to reveal what they saw. Why? Why are the US government going around trying to suppress this story? I've spoken to people who were on the combat weapons system on the USS Princeton, which recorded the Tic Tac data, and the computer hard drives were taken away by unidentified officials who came in by helicopter that day. Why? Why were people ordered to wipe the data from the system? What, what is this? You know, what, and more importantly, why the level of incuriosity by so many people in mainstream media and congressmen and senators? You know, if, if I was a senator, there, there is beyond any shadow of a doubt now, we are in a position where the US government has formally admitted that there is an anomaly here that it cannot explain. It's a genuine mystery. It's real. And we just go on with life. You know, I, I don't get it. You know, to me, I, I'd be asking questions at the Pentagon press briefing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, and that's what I've found really bizarre, actually, when I do speak to um, some of my friends and um, I don't push it onto them, but, but when I do speak to them about the phenomenon, they're, they're sort of like, yep. So aliens exist or, they, they they can't make that connection between how is this going to actually um, affect my life? Um, well, you're, you're saying aliens exist. I'm not saying aliens exist, okay? I'm not prepared to extrapolate and make that mental connection. What I am saying is that there is a mystery. There is an anomalous phenomenon which cannot be explained. And, and we shouldn't assert, I'm certainly not presenting the argument that it's inevitably aliens, extraterrestrials, because funnily enough, if you listen closely to um, Lou Elizondo, he's hinted now multiple times that he thinks that whatever it is might be intra-terrestrial, like it's been here all the time. Mm. It's not, not of this earth. It's always been of this earth. Mm. And it's interesting to me because a lot of the focus of a lot of the research that's being done, I know, is on underwater, underwater submerged objects, USOs. Um, I've spoken to fishermen off the northwest coast of Australia who've seen tic-tac-shaped objects going into the ocean from what they think was orbit at high speed and doing weird things as they enter the water, ba barely causing a ripple in the water as they enter the water, mm. and then lights moving around underneath the water. You know, there, there is definitely something going on. There is an incredibly advanced technology operating in orbit, in our atmosphere and underwater on this planet that mm. the best brains in the American military purport not to be able to explain. I don't know if I buy that, to be perfectly honest. I'm sure they know a lot more than they're letting on.
Yeah, for sure. For sure. Have you, have you ever had your own experience, Ross, or anything no, you know? No, 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 nothing at all. No. Um, uh, I've had interested times as a journalist where I've spoken to people about sightings. I interviewed Charles Holt, who was the colonel at the uh, Rendlesham uh, Air Base in the United Kingdom uh, in Suffolk, where a strange red orb object moved through a forest. And what fascinated me as a journalist about that whole story when I did it was you had sceptical debunkers like um, Chris French and uh, Ian Ridpath who just flatly asserted, well, they didn't see a craft of any kind. They saw a lighthouse. And then when we actually did the investigation and looked at where they would have had to have been looking to see the Orford Ness lighthouse, not only would they not have seen its light because it was in another direction, that they, more importantly, wouldn't have seen the colour of light that they purported to see. And also, it couldn't explain what they saw, which was an object that was red, dripping kind of metal, moving through the forest. And again, telepathically, in a way, communicating with them. You know, yeah. it was interesting because Holt also had that experience. He had that sense that his consciousness was somehow being imposed upon. Mm. And when you meet these people, when you actually, as, I, as I've done, actually go and speak to these people, and Holt was a top secret above cleared officer. He was a guy who was authorised to load nuclear weapons onto aircraft and to deploy those aircraft in the event of nuclear war. You don't get many officials more senior than that, entrusted with more sober responsibilities than that. And this is a guy who said that what he saw was a craft of some kind, that it was intelligently controlled. It wasn't a bloody lighthouse. It was um, it was an object that still to this day has not been explained. And when I dug, and this is what fascinated me, is that when I actually looked at it, I don't think people expect you to do the digging, but when you do the digging and talk to the secondary witnesses, the other people who were there, they give remarkably clear and consistent accounts that match what he says he saw. And if anything, they support the fact that this was something anomalous and extremely unusual and in incapable of prosaic explanation. Mm, mm. Next question. From this, is it is it, when you write a book like this, is it like fishing? You've put it out there. Um, you've, you're, you're collecting more evidence, more facts, building new yeah, stories. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, since I've written that book and, in fact, since the book became public and in particular since the documentary that I made a few weeks ago, uh, my knowledge and understanding of the subject has increased exponentially because a book like that is essentially an invitation for people to come forward. You might notice that at the back of the book, I invite people to approach me through my website and through encrypted email and people are doing that. Mm. They're engaging with me and people are telling me that I should keep on digging. Mm. And um, it's fascinating because Normally in a story, stories kind of lose their momentum. You know, they run out of puff eventually, and then you move on to another yarn as a journalist. Mm. This one has legs. This one's got real legs. I'm so looking forward to getting my teeth into the information that's been coming my way. And kind of in a way, you know, whilst I'm surprised that the rest of the mainstream media is not looking at this issue, I'm kind of relieved about that, to be honest, because it's verdant pastures for somebody like me, because I love digging in areas that no one else is engaged in. 
Mm. Is it like uh, when when you're collecting this information, is it like you've got a big jigsaw puzzle spread out all over the floor and you're you need you're wishing to make connections and and connect the dots or in terms of the next i guess the next chapter the next book has that already started to take form in your in your mind already or is that is it is it is that yet to come uh yeah i'm i must say i'm i'm, I'm already thinking about another book and another documentary series in fact because i the thing i'm fascinated by is the science because you know, there's that slide I read out to you earlier that, that what used to be the stuff of science fiction is now quantum physics. You know, it, it, it's it's no longer just phenomena. It's now accepted quantum physics that, mm. you know, a lot of scientists use that very lame argument that um, these couldn't be interstellar craft because to travel faster than light is impossible according to Einstein's theory of relativity. Therefore, um, it's impossible for human beings or life forms to travel interstellar distances. Therefore, these creatures or whatever they are, these intelligent life forms cannot have come from other star systems. And what that ignores is that there is a body of work now in science, notably in the quantum physics area, where they're looking at things like the Albuchier drive, where they're talking about how theoretically it's possible to compress space-time in front of an object by creating a, a bubble in space-time and then to have that space-time expanding behind that object in a way that allows that object to move instantaneously through space and time. That's theoretically possible under quantum physics. And that's what fascinates me is that, uh, you know, as slide nine says, what is considered phenomena once is now accepted quantum physics theory. Mm. And we're moving into an entirely new area area in science. And that's where my inquiries are going. I'm interested in knowing what happened to the anti-gravitics re research of the 1950s and the 1960s. Because mm. America was, as my friend Nick Cook, Nick wrote a, a brilliant primer for anyone. Oh, sort of dropped my book. Nick wrote a brilliant primer that I keep on my desk, The Hunt for Zero Point, 20 years ago. Mm. And he essentially, he went in search of these X-Files projects, you know, what had happened to anti-gravity that was being talked about quite openly in the 1960s as, as on, the, on the point of a major breakthrough. Why, why haven't we seen this anti-gravitic technology if it exists? And uh, some of the inquiries that he made 20 years ago are just as pertinent today as they were back then. It's fascinating because I do believe that um, the US is definitely working on this in the black. Uh, yeah. There are secret special access programs that are trying to achieve breakthroughs and for all I know may very well have done so. Mm. I just don't know for sure. Mm. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Ross. Um, so it's, it's been uh, fantastic to talk to you. Um, you've been very generous. Thank you so much for, for sharing um, your insights and knowledge uh, about the phenomenon um this is uh ross's book in plain sight um it's available on kindle on amazon audible or wherever you find great books um and thanks again for joining us it's a real pleasure brett and i'm happy to do it again any other time thank you so much